Welcome to Steel Stories by US Steel. In this podcast, we explore the wealth of knowledge from leading industry experts to help you navigate the infinitely developing, renewable world of steel. Welcome back to Steel Stories. I'm David Kirkpatrick, your host, and I'm really pleased today to welcome back Ben Carl, who is Associate General Counsel for International Trade and Public Policy at U.S. Steel, and somebody who was already on our podcast to discuss the big picture of steel and trade, which is surprisingly interesting and a little bit complicated. Ben is a real serious expert in steel trade. And what we're going to talk about today is a little bit more the specifics of how this bizarre and challenging problem of steel trade is being dealt with by the United States government, and particularly two sets of regulatory mechanisms that aim to regulate and somewhat, in many ways, restrain foreign dumping of steel. Before I go into any more of what we learned the first time, I just want to mention that Ben not only is a very senior lawyer at U.S. Steel responsible for all this stuff, but he also at one point has worked both for the Department of Commerce and the International Trade Commission, which are the two entities who are going to be described in this podcast. So he's a real expert about them as well as U.S. Steel and the steel industry, which is all very good. So the first time we talked to you, Ben, I'm just going to try to quickly summarize what we learned. We learned the U.S. used to be the world's leading steelmaker, and then we decided as a country to encourage the rest of the world to start trading and doing stuff, and we made it a lot easier for other countries all over the world to make a lot of steel. China leapt into that void and very quickly became the world's largest steelmaker and now is making 10 times as much steel every year than the United States. The United States makes pretty much as much steel as it needs, more or less, or it does import some, so we need some imports. But China makes 10 times as much as the U.S. makes and has also contributed to building steel industries in a lot of other countries, particularly in Asia. So we have this massive mismatch between production capacity of steel globally and actual use of steel. I believe there's something like 600 million tons of capacity globally beyond what the world actually needs. And it's really because every country thinks steel is a strategic industry. They don't want to be left out. They want to create jobs. They want to do a lot of other stuff. But the net sum total of it all is that the U.S. is then faced with essentially a flood of steel coming in from all over the world, often at unfairly low prices. So that's my rough summary of what we learned on the big picture. Did I get that more or less right, would you say, Ben? Hi, David. Thank you for having me back. Last time was a lot of fun. It was only PG rated in terms of the level of trade wonkiness last time, but I think we should beware this may get R rated for extreme trade law nerdiness. Your description and you know, summary of last episode was spot on, except for one point. We do have lots of imports, but we don't need them. We have the domestic capacity to supply all of our all of the demand, but otherwise spot on. You move to the head of class. Yeah. And basically the amount of steel made in the U.S. is roughly the amount of steel the U.S. needs. And we're practically the only steel making country for which that's true, it seems like. 
Okay, so tell us what are the big picture mechanisms and government attitudes maybe behind them that we're going to be talking about today? So I refer to these as the trade toolbox. And there's a handful of trade laws and tools to address import competition. And they have different purposes from remedies for unfairly traded imports to adjustment assistance for fairly traded imports, national security, we talked about that last time, and even law enforcement. There's different remedies, but we'll talk about tariffs and quotas, other import restrictions. And there's definitely different coverage in terms of the products, the companies and the countries covered. There's differences in who can use these, who can initiate these tools, and the interaction with government. Definitely, there's differences in impact and effectiveness. So like, as you mentioned, I'd like to focus on the two most prevalent tools, at least for the steel industry, and that is anti-dumping and countervailing duties, what I'll refer to as ADCVD, not CBD, CBD, and Section 232, National Security Action. Yeah, Section 232 is the second part, National Security Action, which is a fundamentally different approach. That's quite interesting. We'll get into that. I just remembered one of the things that also might be worth mentioning to listeners about the steel import challenge is that even when governments like ours successfully limit unfair or illegal imports of steel, unfortunately, because steel is in so much stuff, steel sneaks in anyway from some of the same countries in the form of products like, say, washing machines or cars or whatever. And that is something else that the steel regulatory landscape has to take into account in trying to prevent other countries from unfairly dumping steel in the United States. And maybe I'm using this word dumping, but maybe you should redefine it for us again, Ben, since it's sort of behind so much of this topic. Yeah, so I'll define dumping and then give an overview of ADCVD. So dumping is when a foreign exporter, foreign producer sends steel into the U.S. at prices that are either below the price that they sell that product for in their home market or below the cost of production. So we're not talking about you know environmental dumping or anything like that. This is economic price discrimination, really. So stepping back to you know ADCBD, these are the most prevalent remedy for imports. This is for steel and other products in the U.S. And they're intended to offset the injury from imports that are unfairly traded. So unfairly low priced, like we just talked about dumping, or unfairly subsidized by foreign governments. This is designed to level the price playing field. So it increases import prices and or decreases import volumes. And this is available to any industry by successfully petitioning the Department of Commerce and the International Trade Commission. And we can talk about what each agency does in a minute. Another important point is this trade tool is well known and used and condoned by the World Trade Organization. So this is an accepted tool for unfairly traded imports. What other industries does this currently apply to and where is it being used besides steel right now? Great question. So think of commodity products first. So chemicals, raw materials, things like that. And then, as you alluded to already, there's the downstream whack-a-mole game. If you cover steel, then they start bringing in steel-intensive products. So there's cases downstream, upstream, 
anything that the U.S. makes that's being impacted by imports. So anti-dumping and countervailing duties don't actually stop steel from coming in, but they make it more expensive for the importer or the country sending it here. I mean, question of who actually pays it is an interesting one, too. Maybe you should briefly describe that. But it doesn't stop the flow. It just makes it more expensive for it to come into the United States. Exactly. It's not a import ban or embargo or anything like that. It's just trying to remedy the unfair trade. Right. Who does typically pay it, by the way? Is it the importer? Is it the exporter in the foreign country or both? The U.S. importer is legally required to pay it. And there's even rules on preventing the foreign producer or the foreign exporter from reimbursing the U.S. importer. So it's the U.S. importer that pays, definitely. And it's calculated all based on what would a comparable product cost to produce in the United States and how much less is this being sold for? Is that roughly right? No. So for dumping, they're comparing it to the foreign country. Let's use France. So they'll look at what they're selling that product for in France, or they may need to look at what they're selling that product for in a third country. And they compare that price to what they're selling it for in the U.S. If the U.S. price is lower, that's dumping. It gets very complicated very quickly with adjustments and all kinds of these things. But the highest level, that's what it is. And we should also just make very clear, all this is intended to make sure the U.S. retains a vital and sustainable strategic steel industry. So that's what the government's perspective is on all this. That's part of the overall policy goal. But for anti-dumping and countervailing duties, these are really trade remedies for unfair trade, which is different from Section 232, which we'll talk about later, which that focuses on national security and has a broader focus than a particular industry. It takes into account the whole economy. So they're very different purposes. Mm -hmm. Before we go any further, and I want to now start to getting into the details with it, but you work for the Department of Commerce and the ITC. Which ones are involved with these first category of duties that were described? So both the Department of Commerce and International Trade Commission are involved in these ADCBD cases. And to begin a case, it's almost always a domestic industry. So it's If there's imports of widgets that are injuring the U.S. widget industry, it'd be the U.S. producers of widgets, and they file petitions with both agencies. So there's a parallel investigation. The Department of Commerce, in theory, can self-initiate a case, but that's extremely rare and also not usually recommended from my perspective. But the Department of Commerce looks at what is the dumping? What is the subsidy rate? So what would the ultimate tariff be if this case is successful, whereas the International Trade Commission focuses on the U.S. industry and determines whether those imports are actually injuring the domestic industry. And we can talk about the full list of factors they look at and things like that. But the highest level, that's what each one's looking at. One is calculating what the duty should be or would be. And the other is determining whether there is even injury. And you need to win at both agencies to result in an order, an anti-dumping or countervailing duty order with duties. Okay. I'm glad you explained that. So I guess you've pretty much answered it. So those who can pursue these remedies are the injured industries. That's the basic point. Yes. So that could be the actual producers, the companies that produce those products. It could be a trade association representing those producers. And it could also be unions and union workers 
that work at those facilities. It's a distinction between the two different things that the slash is in between with the ADCVD acronym. Yes. So we talked about what dumping is, and this is what the Department of Commerce determines, and it's based on company-specific data. So there's a case on widgets, a widgets from France. Department of Commerce will select the two largest French producers of widgets and collect all of their sales and cost and financial production data and eventually calculate this dumping margin we talked about. It can be more complicated, like we said, if there's not a home market, there's no price to compare it to. You may need to construct this normal value that you're comparing it to. Or it gets even more complicated if you're talking about a non-market economy country or NME, the letters NME, not the word enemy, such as China and Vietnam. And there you use their inputs, the raw materials used to make widgets, but you don't even use their costs because they're a non-market economy. So you apply what is a market economy price to those inputs to build up a dumping margin. So it can get really complicated really quickly. And then the final thing to note for commerce on these dumping calculations is that they conduct very extensive audits called verifications at the foreign facilities. And as you mentioned, when I was at commerce, you know, I conducted several verifications in China and then as a law firm, also verifications in Russia. And they are very, very challenging events. They sound as challenging as they are, you know, trade audits. So you go over there in a case like that and try to figure out what they're paying, what they're charging, who's getting it. That's got to be like a little bit like being in the CIA almost. So you're checking to see that the numbers, the numbers and the data they've reported to commerce already are accurate or if they have three versions of these numbers and they have to reconcile all these numbers up into their financial statements. It's quite endeavor. Okay. Just at the risk of complicating all this further, but let's grant it, it is very complicated. How many countries currently are these duties currently being applied to in steel? That's a great question. For the steel products that U.S. Steel makes, it's about 20 countries. And then there's different products because that's a key point for ADCBD is these are surgical. These are surgical tools. They are lasers. They focus on a specific product like hot rolled steel or seamless pipe from a particular country, and then they calculate the rate based on a particular company. There's about 20 countries in response to your question, and different countries have different sets of orders, so different products are covered. This is maybe more than we will really have time for, but I would assume the countries must get really pissed off in some cases. Do they try hard to lobby for these things to not happen? They fight against the orders. They fight against getting high rates. There can be some lobbying involved, but it's a much less political process than something like Section 232 or trade negotiations. It's an administrative process, but absolutely, they participate and they want to fight to continue to keep their share of the market. And they can come out on top too. If there's one widget maker from France that gets a 50% duty, and the other one gets a 5% duty, you can imagine who's going to benefit with their own national competition. So do the proceedings at these entities like the Department of Commerce sometimes end up being almost like a court of law where you're on one side and you're arguing against a lawyer for a producer in 
Germany or Turkey or whatever? It's absolutely an adversary administrative proceeding. And eventually all the things we talk about can be appealed in the U.S. court system. It's very, very adversarial. And the big companies, for example, Korea, I mean, they will spend every penny they need to to try to get the best result for themselves, which is completely understandable. And on the same side on the U.S., obviously, Department of Commerce is the agency and they're making the final decisions. But the domestic industry and its lawyers will also participate extremely actively to you know, prosecute these cases. Let's talk a little bit more on the ITC side of this idea of material injury to the industry or the company. Talk about how that works. International Trade Commissioner ITC decides if U.S. imports materially injure domestic industry. That's a term of art. And while Department of Commerce is this huge agency with over 47,000 employees worldwide, part of the executive branch, of course, the ITC is a small independent agency with less than 400 people. And all they do is look at these cases and another type of trade case, but all trade. So the ITC is, it's intended to be led by six commissioners. And this is all supposed to be, you know, non-political. So they're nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate. No more than three commissioners can be from any political party. And the chairman and the vice chair have to be from different parties and they alternate. The commissioners have nine-year terms, so it's not an election cycle or anything like that. And I said that it was intended to be six commissioners because right now we only have four. Now, the ITC is going to determine if these imports materially injure the U.S. by considering a whole list of factors, but they all relate to volume, price, impact, and causation. And each commissioner considers and weighs these factors differently. So it's very important to know, to understand how the commissioners look at these factors and their own jurisprudence. But I'll boil these down to top 10 injury factors. So the more the domestic industry can demonstrate, the stronger their case is. Nothing is outcome determinative. First, president of low-priced imports in the U.S. market that compete with your products. Increasing volumes from one or more country. The domestic industry losing market share. So their actual sales could be declining or they could be increasing, but not increasing as much as overall demand is increasing. Pricing pressure, sales prices declining or sales prices not increasing enough to cover their increased costs. Obviously, decreased sales and revenue, especially if you can tie that directly back to those imports. And then, of course, decreases in production, decreases in capacity utilization, layoffs, shift hour wage reductions, closures of domestic manufacturing facilities, decreases in capital investments, R&D, and obviously decreases in profitability and return on investments. Then that's not even the whole list. <laughs> but those are like the top 10. The more of those you can check, the better case you have. Is it reasonable to assume that at one time or another, all of those would likely have affected the steel industry in the United States? Absolutely. I mean, we do not file these cases lightly and cost millions of dollars to file. And so we spend a lot of time doing our due diligence to make sure we're filing a strong case. I'm going to file a slam dunk case where, you know, check every single one of these boxes. Sometimes industries may need to file even earlier because it's like a bet the farm type situation where it's the only product they make. There's too much blood on the floor and they need to act a little earlier. So 
They might not be able to check as many of those boxes yet, but they all make sense. They're easy to understand factors, but there's so many of them. So it's really important how you pursue these cases. The timing of these cases is absolutely critical. You could file a case too early and lose and not have another chance. You could file a case too late and it won't even matter if you win. So it's really critical in determining the right time to pursue these. I would assume that sometimes the individual company like U.S. Steel is the complainant here and sometimes it's the industry association. Is that correct? For any normal case, yes, it could be a single company if they're large enough to have that standing to pass a threshold of representing the industry. It could be an association, it could be an ad hoc coalition, and it could also just be the union. There are cases where the United States Steelworkers Union is the sole petitioner or complainant for those cases. Okay. Well, I will say, just a quick aside, with all due respect, this is definitely a full employment act for lawyers. My gosh, you are one of the world's leading experts, but there must be a lot of people in your community. Because this has got to be a gigantic set of work, a big, big job. So, okay, we're going to move to 232 in a minute, but you've mentioned this whack-a-mole problem. Just quickly recapitulate why it's whack-a-mole and how does ADCVD actually address that? So whack-a-mole is this very technical term of art we use to describe. So you file a trade case on steel from China. And then they start sending their steel through a third country, or they start just saying it's from a third country, or they move downstream, like we've talked, to a steel-intensive product, and then you cover that. So it's just the constant game of whack-a-mole, where you knock one, one out, and then two more pop up. Fortunately, in ADCVD world, there are laws to address that whack-a-mole to some degree, and they're called anti-circumvention laws. And there's also duty evasion laws. And the difference between those is circumvention is when you're doing something that takes the product that's coming in the U.S. out of the literal scope of the order. And the scope is the product description. It's very technical product description. So you can make the steel a little bit thicker or a little bit thinner or add a hole to it, something like that that takes out of the literal scope. So then we have to follow proceeding to address that. And compared to evasion, which is actually unlawful customs fraud, where you're lying to customs and that's criminal. And so both of those tools are available to address either circumvention or evasion of ADCVD. Unfortunately, they are not available for 232 tariffs. And we can talk more about that later, but that's a key distinction as well. Well, we probably do need to pivot to 232, but is there anything else you want to add about this ADCVD set of issues before we do that? I think the one key point is, so we've described how the ADCVD rates are calculated, but those are just estimated rates. So if you win a case, you have these orders, it results in uh, cash deposits. So the importers have to, so if it's a, say, 15% is the estimated rate, they have to deposit 15% cash to continue bringing those imports. But then every year, all those entries will be reviewed and the Department of Commerce will calculate whether it was more or less than 15%. If it's less, that company can get some money back. If it's more, they have to pay more and start depositing more. And so that retrospective system, where it's not like you just pay the tariff and move on, 
is very different from every other type of tariff and duty. And but it, it creates this price discipline where even if you have a low duty, a low cash deposit rate, it could even be a zero, you're not going to go and start dumping because you know you'll get hit next year. And it also, you talked about you know, who pays this. It's the importers that pay it. And this creates massive uncertainty for them because they're the ones who have to put the deposit up. They have to put their working capital up and it can take years for them to get that money back and they don't know if it'll be more or less. So it, there's some significant market discipline that the ADCB has. It's very different from other measures, including 232. Okay, well, let's talk about 232. And in, in making this shift to this topic, I think we have to make clear, this is a bigger picture sort of effort on the part of the U.S. government for even more kind of grand purposes. And it's a relatively new development. So tell us what it is and why it's important in the steel industry. The steel 232, so the 232 measure on steel imports is relatively, I mean, we're at five and a half years now. But the law, which is section 232, the Trade Expansion Act, is from the Cold War. It's from the 60s. So it was a law that was not used that frequently up until President Trump. And we'll talk a lot more about that in a minute. But it was used and it was used on products like oil and crude oil, petroleum, especially in the 70s. Other than that, it was used on very specific, small niche type products and usually did not result in tariffs. Other than oil, not something as broad as steel or aluminum. And then to your point and how broad it is, it is, it is for national security. So the law is pretty simple. Congress is giving their power and their authority to the president to adjust imports if the Commerce Department finds that those imports threaten to impair national security. And some people think of national security as this more narrow, more defense-related concept, but the law is very clear. It's very broad. So this is the impact on industries similar to ADCD. Domestic production, capacity, development, employment, you know, all of these things, government revenue. And so it's a very, very different animal. It's not company specific, for example. It's not company specific. And there's so much discretion by the president in terms of as long as she checks all the boxes that's in the statute of you know, the time in, the discretion is very wide in terms of what the president thinks is in the national security. So it could be a tariff. It could be an embargo. It could be a financial assistance program. There's really no limit to what the remedy could be as long as it's related to adjusting imports. Wow. So it could include tariffs. It could include quotas. Why don't you briefly describe how each of those two things would work under 232 or are working? I want to back up for 232 and really walk through the Commerce Department's report President Trump initiated you know, back in 2017. Yeah, that history is critical. And I think this is important because, like I just said, you know, lots of people think this is about national security. So the reasoning is steel's used in the military, so we should put in tariffs on imports. And that's not even half of the story. So I like to boil it down, the report findings, to five key findings. And a lot of these will sound familiar from our episode one. The first one is... Easy. Steel's important national security. We've already talked about that ad nauseum in episode one. And I won't ask you to tell me the 16 critical 
infrastructure sectors that are cited in that report. Finding two, global steel overcapacity contributes to increased imports and the steel industry faces an increased competition as other countries export more. And some of that is just displacing China from their own market. So those are two simple points. Then steel imports injure the domestic industry. And this isn't, you know, within the ADCBD sense of it, but it's the same point. Steel mill closures, employment declines. They found that steel employment in America declined 35% from 2000 to 2017. The average steel companies had an average negative income since 2009. And then here's where it gets even more important. The declining domestic steel capacitization is not economically sustainable. At the time, it was 72%. And the Commerce Department, which you may recall, was then headed by Secretary Wilbur Ross, who has some experience in the steel industry, found that you need at least 80%, 8-0 capacitization to have a sustainable steel industry. And the continued loss of this capacity in the workforce all jeopardizes national security. So that all sounds familiar probably from what we talked about last episode, but that's how it all works together. And then, so the Commerce Department found that the current situation was threatening national security. And the only way to remove that was to reduce imports such that the domestic industry could get back to that 80% utilization rate. So they used an econometric model to determine how much imports would need to decline for the domestic industry to get up to 80%. So they provided the president three recommendations. First one's easy, a 63% quota. If you block imports to only 63% of what they're coming in, you're inherently going to reduce imports by at least 37%. The other was a 24% tariff across the board for all countries. And then the third option was what I call the uh, dirty dozen option, which is 53% tariffs on the worst actors, the 12 worst actors, and then 100% quota on the others. You mean these are countries? Yes. Worst act, like some countries, like China, I assume, is among the worst, if not the worst. And then you have, just quickly mentioned a couple other countries we're talking about in the sort of yep. not too good category. It's worth it because we'll talk about these countries in a minute too. Brazil, Korea, Russia, Turkey, India, Vietnam, China, Thailand, South Africa, Egypt, Malaysia, and Costa Rica. All those countries are essentially sending steel to the U.S. in a manner that hurts the U.S. industry. Exactly. Where they were before the action. And so that report went to the president. And then eventually in March 2018, he announced he was imposing these 232 national security tariffs. I remember this time very vividly because my son was born then and we came this close to naming him Steel 232 Carl. <laughs> but we didn't. And so the coverage has changed a lot over the five and a half years and we could talk about specifically how that's changed, but where are we now in terms of the 232? So the, the 232 subjects imports of steel from all countries to a 25% tariff except, and this is a huge exception now, Argentina, Brazil, and Korea, which are subject to hard quotas, quantitative limits, imports from Europe, the UK, and Japan are subject to tariff rate quotas, 
So they're allowed to bring in some imports tariff-free, and then once they hit that volume, then they can still bring them in. They have to pay the tariff. Then there's Canada and Mexico that are completely exempt from tariffs and quotas. In theory, they could be subject to a snapback tariff if there's a surge. That has not happened. And then Australia, completely exempt from the very beginning. Some mystery around the details of that, but we believe it was a you know confidential agreement focused on defense cooperation bases and things like that. And then most recently, Ukraine. And that was in response to the invasion by Russia last year. So Ukraine's also exempt from the 232. Oh, so were all those countries that are treated differently from other countries, aside from Australia, which was from the inception, were those arrived at individually based on their governments complaining? Basically just, oh, we're the, you're friends with the UK, therefore they're all right. I mean, how does all that distinction get made? So, of course, when 232 came out and everybody was included, many of those countries were personally offended because this is a national security. But all this, it's lobbying, it's bilateral negotiations, and that's how you have all these different measures. And even with the quotas, each country has different quotas. It's all the result of international negotiations between the U.S. and its trading partners. Okay, so from the inception... Canada, Mexico, and Australia were excluded. Is that correct? No. Australia was the only one initially excluded. So even the Canada and Mexico thing came up later. And it was a huge deal. You may recall President Trump was also renegotiating NAFTA, North American Free Trade Agreement. Now it's called USMCA. But when that deal was done, when USMCA was finally agreed to, NAFTA 2.0, that's when President Trump gave Canada and Mexico the exemption. So the middle of 2019. So there was a good year where Canada and Mexico were subject to the 232 tariffs. And Canada responded with retaliation on U.S. exports to Canada. I'm sure you have more to say about 232, but I have to ask, the anti-dumping and countervailing duties, those cases can occur in addition to whatever those countries as a country are being required to pay under 232. Is that correct? Absolutely. And that's very important. So we just described who's subject to 232 tariffs or quotas or TRQs. And on top of that, if applicable, there's anti-dumping duties and countervailing duties. And for some countries, one could be more restrictive than the other. But it's absolutely true. And I've mentioned to calculate a dumping margin, it gets really complicated with all these adjustments. One of the adjustments now is if you pay a 232 tariff. So you have to calculate, you have to back the tariff out of the calculations. Oh my God, you gotta be a mathematician as well as a lawyer for all this stuff. Okay, let's just step back for one second and ask this big question. How is all this affecting the US steel industry? Very big question. It all works together. So first you have the ADCVD, but then you have the whack-a-mole problem. And first with ADCVD, that ADCVD is effective at addressing the worst actors like China. ADCVD is the reason we don't have direct imports from China. But then you have the whack-a-mole. And so 232 was a great solution to that whack-a-mole problem when there were holes in it. Because it was absolute and applied to everybody, at least initially. Exactly. Yeah. And so now you have more holes and... It's a very conservative estimate, but right now my estimate for this year is that only 
about 15.15% of steel imports are subject to 232 tariffs. And only about a half of imports are subject to either the quotas or some other part of 232. So, you know, the coverage has reduced significantly, but it still helps with the whack-a-mole problem. So you have ADCVD and 232 combined to provide this web of trade relief. And it's not perfect. There's holes. What do you think happened when we exempted Canada and Mexico from the 232? Their imports increased. And now they're at record levels. And now we're all the way back around. Now we're filing ADCVD cases against imports from Canada to Mexico because they're exempt from 232. So it's a continuous game of whack-a-mole and you have to stay vigilant and you have to know which tools to use when and how best to use them. Would it be reasonable to say that if these two sets of mechanisms did not exist, the U.S. steel industry would essentially be unable to operate profitably, period? Yes, definitely. We talked about global overcapacity, 600 million tons could inundate the entire U.S. market. At six times the U.S. production could capability. Without diverting a ton. But then you have China. China could send a month's worth of their production could satisfy the U.S. market for a year. So to me, it is absolutely critical for the domestic steel industry to have these tools. On 232, I know there's a couple more things we might want to discuss. What are the challenges to it? That's a great question. So one of the biggest challenges is what we talked about, the low coverage. So you have all these quotas and exemptions, and we actually didn't even talk about the other one, which is product exclusions. So the Department of Commerce oversees an exclusion process where U.S. companies can file a request excluded from the tariffs or quotas for products that they can't get in the U.S. So it's either they can't get that type of steel and you know, that quality, that grade, or they just can't get enough of it. So the requester files a request. Companies like U.S. Steel can object. It's for something that we can make. And then ultimately, Department of Commerce decides. But if they win, they get an exclusion for a very specific product. And it's probably even more specific than the kind of the product level for ADCBD. So even a very, very specific product, and it's usually good for a year, and they're able to avoid those tariffs. So the coverage is definitely a challenge. Then you also have the uncertainty, because there's no expiration date on 232. Technically, it could be removed today with the stroke of a presidential pen and a proclamation, but there's no expiration date. Again, unlike ADCBD, where there's statutory timelines for all of this, how long an order lasts and how long when it's reviewed and everything like that. There used to be lots of opposition to industries impacted by 232 due to the other country's retaliation. So we put the 232 on imports of steel from Europe. Europe decides to put tariffs on U.S. exports of politically sensitive products like bourbon and Harley-Davidson's and Levi jeans. And China imposes retaliation on U.S. agriculture exports, which is multi, multi billions of dollars of exports. So you have those folks who are opposed to 232, not because of steel prices or something. It's because they're getting hit on their own exports. You mean those domestic industries? Exactly. Yeah, right. And of course, that's what they gave up for the, all these deals. Korea doesn't retaliate because they have a quota. Well, it would seem, among other things, the extension of 232 to the present 
is one of several examples of President Biden in the trade arena continuing policies that Trump had imposed for the first time. And that's quite intriguing in itself politically, but we're not going to talk politics here. But let me ask another big picture question. And that is, is it the steel industry and U.S. Steel's general feeling that the net effect of all of these measures sufficiently demonstrates the U.S. government's concern for the state of the industry? Is it enough? Yes, in general. So the laws are there, the tools are there, and then you know, to the extent we've used the tools, the measures are there. So now the remaining part is enforcement. All of these laws and tools and duties, they're only worth as much as they're enforced. And so that's the key. And obviously, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, their only job to enforce ADCVD or 232. Yeah, they have to worry about many other things. So prioritizing enforcement is the one area where there's sometimes there's resource constraints. But overall, like I said last time, I think there's bipartisan support for strong trade enforcement and use of these trade tools. Okay. Well, there's another big picture topic we can't not discuss, and that is the reaction of customers of the steel industry to all this, because presumably in quite a few instances, they end up paying more because the steel industry is being protected, which is for good reason in many cases, obviously. But what do they think? I mean, that's a big question and probably hard to answer in the aggregate, but how should we think about customer reaction to all this? Is a big question. So as more and more products are covered by ADCVD or 232, for our producers, it's going to move downstream. And that's where our customers are. Our customers are downstream. Many of them see the benefit of ADCVD and addressing unfairly traded imports. And they use those laws as well. And we support them in those efforts. Now, 232, national security, it gets a little, I guess, more personal especially with the 232 product exclusions. So it could be a customer requesting an exclusion and we have to object to it. It's not like an ADCVD case where we're battling with a foreign steel producer. We're participating in this exclusions process with a customer, a very delicate situation. So again, in 232, just like in the other ABCVD, it's the U.S. customer who pays these duties costs. Not necessarily. The U.S. importer record pays ADCVD and 232 duties. The importer record could also be the end user, an unaffiliated distributor, trading company, or an affiliate or a subsidiary of the foreign producer. But I mean, in terms of the customers, look, I mean, we work with our customers on actual trade advocacy. I work with several customers in the Clear Advisor Committee. We try to educate them with things like this podcast and other discussions, make sure they understand what's available to them, the tools they can use. And we support them in actual trade cases. I mean, we've had cases where we support them on washers and welded pipe that we sell. You know, we sell hot rolled sheet to the welded pipe guys. So there's a lot of areas, especially ADCVD, where we work together. And like I said, 232 could be a little more personal, but also it goes back to the ultimate point of, you want to have a domestic industry. You need to have supply. And if you lose that, you're up next in terms of the food chain and the game of whack-a-mole. Finally, a healthy domestic manufacturing base stimulates local communities with good paying jobs and increased domestic demand and consumption. Wow. 
Is it reasonable to assume that this gap between, which I believe 1.9 billion tons of steel being used in the world today, but 2.5 billion tons of steel being produced in the world today, 600 million ton differential, is that amount, the 600 million, even growing more in future, would you predict? It's projected to grow more, definitely, because countries are adding capacity at a faster rate than demand is increasing. And as we talked about, your capacity is sticky, you're not going to remove it quickly. So it is projected to increase. And I mentioned this last time, but I really think the global push for decarbonization in the steel industry is going to further exacerbate the global overcapacity in the coming decades because the countries that are adding that capacity, adding the most capacity, are the countries that have 2060 or 2070 net zero goals. So they have decades before they really start have to thinking about decarbonizing and rationalizing capacity. But they can build the old style steel mills that still produce a ton of pollution and carbon dioxide. Wow. Well, so I guess we could assume that we're going to see these kinds of government policies and restrictions and duties and fees and quotas, et cetera, more or less around in some fashion for the foreseeable future. I would say yes, but the foreseeable future is not that long. I cannot imagine you know a massive pivot on 232 before coming presidential elections. And then ADCBD, I mean, it's the law. There's reviews. So that once you have an order, they're reviewed every five years to see if they should continue for another five years or not. So that process will continue. And when the International Trade Commission finds that the order is no longer needed, they'll revoke them. But these things continue moving. And we had, the, for U.S. Steel specifically, last year was a huge year for, they're called sunset reviews when they look at every five years. And we had 29 ADCBD orders up for review last year and 25 were continued. So those are good for another five years. So that's definitely a foreseeable future. 232 is more, you know, that's part of it. That's the nature of the law that it's subject to political conditions and geopolitics and everything else. Well, the complexities continue. Thank you so much, Ben Carl, for joining us for this extremely interesting and somewhat complicated discussion about steel regulatory mechanisms and trade and steel. You've really done a great job explaining it now, two different episodes of Steel Stories, and it's it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you, David. It was a lot of fun. And anyone listening, happy to you know go even further down in the details anytime. I do this every day, and luckily, I enjoy it. So thank you very much. You know a lot. Thank you so much, Ben. Steel Stories is brought to you by U.S. Steel. To find out more about our sustainable steel solution and how our best for all strategy allows us to re-envision the future alongside our customers, visit www.ussteel.com. Search for U.S. Steel in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. And make sure to hit subscribe so you never miss a future episode. On behalf of the team here at U.S. Steel, thanks for listening.